this, this, this show is brought to you by Safety FM. What's up, peeps? Welcome back to Rebounding Safety. Today we're talking about loan working, but it was kind of a different perspective around a different industry that I probably never would have thought of until I was kind of in it or speaking about it. Um, but we're kind of talking, I suppose, around like the definition or, or at least our, our where our thoughts go when we mention lone worker is kind of changing and lone worker is actually becoming a bit of a risk that's kind of hard to manage now in certain spaces which maybe we didn't really think about before you want to find out some more about it we'll jump in the intro and then i'll tell you some more about it and we can get into today's episode let's go the problem in safety isn't deviation, it's complexity. Health and safety has gone mad. Health and safety is trying to unpick having gone mad in the past. There's no one solution or one problem. The problem is that we are looking for one solution. Does the structure of the team allow them to flourish? Feel safe enough to be uncomfortable. The environment defines our behaviors. People aren't the problem, they're the solution. Rebranding safety, crushing the stereotype. Brought to you by Risplur. What's up peeps, welcome back to Rebranding Safety. Rebranding Safety is a YouTube channel and podcast doing exactly what it says on the tin so if you're new here hit subscribe hit the bell hit all of those magical algorithm buttony thingamajigs my name's james mcpherson from the company risk fluent ltd which is the health safety and culture consultancy that sits behind rebranding safety rebranding safety is essentially our purpose as an organization we really do want to make safety kind of help go into that next evolution change its perception and so on and you are all part of this journey so thank you very much for listening in if you're a loyal listener or a new listener it doesn't matter you're all welcome here even if you're a pained listener even if you're like i fucking hate that james guy but somebody said this episode was really good so i'm just gonna have to fucking listen to it maybe i'll turn it down when james talks <laughs> i just don't like to know if there was actually anyone like that Anyway, today we're talking to a lovely lady over in Canada who kind of went from a non-safety related industry and then went on a really interesting journey to, to, to create a piece of tech that supports loan workers. You might all be thinking, oh, we've spoke to loan workers, loan worker apps before and things like that. And there is many of them. And you're right, there is. It was an interesting conversation, though, because... Um, they were coming at it from what industries are we talking to or more importantly, what industries actually are we not talking to that we should be? And essentially that's what we spoke about uh, today. So I won't tell you any more because I don't want to spoil it. Let's jump into the episode and then Cerise will introduce herself. Let's get in to the episode. There we go. Cerise, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thank you very much for coming on. Um, so we're going to talk about loan working and stuff today and the work that you guys are doing at Solis Gadget. But, but first, you want to give us a bit of an introduction into yourself? For sure. Well, first of all, thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. Um, this is definitely a treat for sure. Uh, my name is Sarisa Landers, and I'm the founder and CEO of SolusGuard. And what we do is we help to keep loan workers safe. Um, and I would describe myself as an accidental entrepreneur. This isn't something that I had planned in my life, but here we are today. And you are based out of Canada. Um, Correct. Sorry. Yes. So have you always lived in Canada? I have always lived in Canada. Always I in my home province of Saskatchewan. I've been many places, but I've always lived there. Yeah. And which is fine right now, but in the winter, I wonder why the, why I'm there. 
Oh, see, I, it's always part of the world. I, I, I think I'll have to go one day. Like it just, I, it looks beautiful. It sounds amazing. Everyone's really nice. And I don't know, is that a cliche? Is that real? Is, is everyone genuinely really nice in Canada? Or? You know, for the most part, we are, particularly to tourists and strangers, like to each other, maybe not so much, but uh, we're generally an agreeable sort of people. Yeah, yeah. Does does just a completely going off piece? Does the kind of like cliche of like Canadians all apologise even when they're in the right? It, does that get annoying, or is that like it? It does get annoying, and <laughs> for the most part, people are like that. Now, I'm not like that personally, so it does really bother me because I don't get it. So, but yeah, so there's a lot of super friendly people that feel the need to apologize for everything which i don't get myself but teaches on i don't i don't think any country can not have a stereotype that that um that annoys them so uh that's good okay we didn't want to talk about canada that's for sure (laughs) (laughs) there are assholes here too though so for sure (laughs) oh that's good that's good to know that's good to know um so how give me give me kind of a bit of a bit of a backstory of you and and kind of how you came to be the accidental entrepreneur that you that you say yeah i spent all my career in financial services industry working for um financial planning banking all of that sort of fun stuff and was you know had a pretty good career in it um but my parents became ill and that really changed the narrative for me. And I was looking for a way to keep them safe. And all I could find was medical alert devices. So I don't know if you have them, you have them there, but we have this terrible commercial from, I don't know, the 80s, help by fallen and can't get up. It's horrifying. Anyways, those alert devices. Um, and so my dad wouldn't wear anything like that. I needed to find something different, had an idea on how I could create something different. And thought, how hard could it be? Um, Well, spoiler alert, it's really, really hard. But I didn't know it at the time. So I started building my first company, which was these medical alert devices or personal safety devices for seniors, but a lot more modern and look better, et cetera. So that's kind of how I got into it. Well, then pretty soon it just overtook everything. And I did what any reasonable person would do. I quit my high paying job and my salary and my pension and benefits. And I let all that go to start a tech company. So that was my first company. Um, And then out of there, what ended up happening is we just had all sorts of companies and government organizations looking for ways to keep their employees safe. And from Aura, which was the first company, came Solus Guard, which is the um, loan worker safety company. Wow. So is Aura still still going, the, the one that's more targeting the senior community? Or? Yeah, it is still going. Um, we've been dealt, like many organizations, many companies across the world and many tech companies, a couple blows as it relates to the global chip shortage and supply chain issues and whatnot. So Aura has been a bit on pause over this last um, year or so. Well, we've been focusing on Solus Guard for now, um, but the idea is to come back to it and when we're ready and we have the inventory for Aura to keep that going as well. Because mm. it's, in, it's interesting, just I know we didn't come on to, to talk about that, but it is interesting uh, what drove you to, 
to to do that and in, in my safety career i've worked in the care sector and the majority of the stuff for the care sector it is a bit garish and like ugly and just like it, it screams like i'm old now doesn't it like so it's interesting that, that something i'd observed like oh god i don't think my grandma would want I like my grandma's always been very quite prim and proper and um and, and i just think god she'd never have some of that stuff in her house and, and interesting that the same the same thing has driven you to to be where you are now that's interesting it's horrifying some of that stuff they look like garage door openers that's what they look like and they we say to older adults you know put this on smile and be happy and pretend that you love it but you're absolutely right it's this big sign on their body that says i'm old and i'm frail and take care of me and they hate it and then we wonder why they don't wear it and when they need it it's on the bedside table and they can't reach it because nobody wants to wear that it's it's horrifying. Yeah. So we that was the first thing that we addressed. We actually took the technology, put it into jewelry, beautiful jewelry um, or discrete wearables that nobody could tell what it was. Just addressing that issue to make it actually wearable so people wore it and used it and stayed safe was, you know, a, a must do. And it's funny how design seems to be the last thing when it comes to older adults, which is not fair because there are a lot of women that in particular that are very prideful and and men too they're just it's i don't know why we neglect them in that process mm. and and interestingly i would say that the design and and maybe aesthetics is is equally a latter consideration in safety as well so when when you were talking so so as you said in that in that kind of journey and I, I i appreciate i'm skipping around all over the place but in that kind of journey you you then started getting interest from companies to say could could you do this for my employees so what what were you finding was, was it that they you didn't have anything or was it that they liked the ethos and what you guys were doing in that sector or, or was it maybe a bit of both well, you know, um, the problems that we solved in the senior side of things, one was aesthetics for sure. And it does actually matter with a lot of the industries that we're working with. It maybe doesn't matter if you're oil and gas or construction, but it matters if you're a professional, that you've got something really discreet. So that mattered. It mattered that it paired with a smartphone and, and some of the technology that we have around that, that matter. It mattered that it was customizable or that it had a backup called emergency. So the fundamental pieces that we had made for older adults directly translated over to industry anyways. So the organizations that were reaching out to us saying, yes, this, exactly this, but over here with us. And then as we worked with them, they said, now, in addition to that, we need more. We need it to be more complex. We need check-in software. We need satellite. We need all these other things. But the core um, functionality of our panic buttons essentially translated into solving a need on the industry side. Nice. nice. Uh, did, did you find that the was the aesthetics conversation... It, it just was, it, it, you kind of touched on it. It was very much depending on industry. So you weren't, that, that wasn't a, a, we weren't bothered about it in oil and gas, but maybe in the more, more professional type sides, they were bothered about it. That was, was that quite a strong com, dominant conversation? Or? 
Yes, absolutely. I remember, you know, having a conversation with, um, so here in Canada, all the parole officers across the country use our product. And they said, you know, these are individuals who in Canada, they don't, they don't wear guns or they don't wear, you know, a full set of gear. They're dressed like professional people and they go out and they meet with the parolees. And they said, you know, there's all sorts of people, all sorts of sizes, women and men wearing professional clothing and having this big thing on them, which was cumbersome to wear, um, difficult, clunky, but also obvious to the parolee <laughs> as to what it is. Um, for all of these reasons, it just wasn't safe. Yeah. That, because that, that's interesting. The, the, again, when I worked in the, the, it was kind of the care sector, but we also had, I had several properties within my region that was like ex-offender type properties so similar type of environment and that, and we had these quite quite big like lanyardy type things that were just like you know panic button like it looked like a big joke button on there you know <laughs> I, I ended up getting a bit more subtle ones later on but but ultimately the the customers in the building knew knew very much what they were uh they weren't subtle they knew what they were some of the staff found that they didn't like to wear them because it distracted from a conversation in the oh why are you wearing that you don't trust me you don't trust me is that why you're wearing that and it it didn't help the conversation so so interestingly the kind of knock-on effects as to 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 your point like knock-on effects of of the how things look um and that comes back to, I find it fascinating why I'm kind of doubling down on this. I find it fascinating that that doubles back to really your original intent with the first problem that you were trying to solve is how does this look and what message does that communicate out? Absolutely. Well, it sets a tone for sure. You mm. know, if you're going to go into a meeting that's already, you know, high stress or high stakes, you're going into this and the person across from you is saying, oh, so this is this is how it's going to be. You know, already those tension levels start to rise. And um, so if you can eliminate that without eliminating their ability to call for help, obviously you need them to stay safe. So it's a saw off. So yeah, the aesthetics actually do matter. As does simplicity. I found that, you know, we built our technology so that somebody who's 90 years old, and we had 90 year olds using our tech because you need a smartphone, you need a few things like that. So it needed to be extremely simple and intuitive. And what we found that also translated to industry because there's all sorts of people with different levels of tech savviness and um, comfort level with technology. And also they're trying to do their job. They're not focusing on tech. So if we created something that was really, really simple to use and manage, then they were more likely to use it. So I, I do find it quite interesting that all these fundamental, fundamental factors that we built for a 90-year-old translates into something for basic industry. It's pretty cool. Yeah, that, that's that's actually fascinating. When we when we spoke before, we didn't didn't really touch on that, and um, that that is quite fascinating. That that just even from like a entrepreneurial point of view, that 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 kind of following the the journey of that problem, and you've solved that that problem and got to a point where you're like, oh, this is actually working quite well, and we're doing something really cool here, and then all of a sudden, out of nowhere, you've got the same problem, but but from a different perspective, um, causing different potential outcomes, which I find that's fascinating. That really is. 
Um, you've touched on a couple of, of interesting um, industries, and, and I, I want to really get into it because I find this fascinating. What we want to talk about today, but but typically the kind of first the, the first kind of interest that you were getting with this was it typically those oil and gas, so sectors that we might all think about when we talk about loan working. Was was that the first interest that you were getting when you started moving over to the industry type things? Would it those typical kind of trade engineering based environments, or you talked about like the care sectors, the parole sector? Sorry, for example, was that an early on? Right out of the gates, it was a mix, and I think that also caused some confusion for us because we were trying to figure out where do we fit, and on. Like our very first paying customer was um, a real estate agent. And so we, I don't know if you call them real estate agents as well. They sell homes. So the real estate agents, that was our very first customer. And we had a number of those. And then the next one that we had was um, government agencies for um, highways and um, some of the more traditional companies. So then we're confused. We're we're like, okay, well, there's this very blue collar type industry. And then over here, this is very white collar industry. Um, and so trying to figure out, you know, being an, at, at that time, being an early stage startup and where's your ideal customer profile or ICP and who should we focus on and who do we market to? And it was a little schizophrenic because there was kind of all of these different um, areas and loan worker by the, if you were to look it up. I, I bet what always comes up is the blue collar, um, the oil and gas and the, you know, that construction and utilities, that sort of a thing of which we do have customers in that space. But um, what was really growing for us was this completely different industry that we hadn't anticipated. This industry that involved everything from nurses and teachers and politicians and this whole other group that I think just have it hasn't been catered to in any way or hasn't been surface serviced in any way. Mm. Because I'm not when we when we first kind of talking that that was the 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 interest thing because even piqued my kind of oh yeah I've actually never thought of some of these professions like for example you touched on kind of politics for example which is becoming around the world oh, sorry just to quickly answer your question that we call them estate agents so we get rid of the real but we still call them estate agents um, so so yeah didn't even think about politicians you know and the MPs in my town and the next town. Um, they're just like you could bump into them in the pub, like which is probably not a good thing. Like, but but in a way, they are an employee um, of I don't know the government, I suppose, a local council. I'm not really sure how it works around here, but um, and they are very much like you don't you don't see them walking around with like you know close protection officers or anything like that or security. So. I never, I never thought of that of politicians actually at all. I think you'd, ha you would expect the prime minister and maybe the cabinet, um, mm -hmm. you know, like his top six people to be like, yeah, okay, fair enough. They're, they're a big target, but like we had, we had an MP. I was, oh God, it was before COVID, so it must be like, must have been about uh, a fair few years ago now. 
but um, the lady, I can't remember her name, I think it was Joe something, who got stabbed. And she was an MP. She got stabbed, and I believe it was during work. Um, so it well and truly is like a, a huge problem. And they well and truly are lone workers, like walking around, doing a bit. They might pop into somewhere where there is a group, but, but ultimately they do work on their own. And I would have never have put two and two together. And maybe it's because I've not worked in that industry, but... When you, I mean, do you do you work in in a politics space, do you, or or is that just something you're you're aware of? I don't work in that space, but definitely aware of it. And the incidences are against politicians are absolutely rising. There's something you just said a minute ago. You said while she was at work. What I find though with politicians is that they're sort of like celebrities in the fact that they're always in the eye of the public they're always at work. They mm-hmm. sort of lose their identity as an individual and they become this, as you said, they're the MP, they're the mayor, they're the whatever they are. They're no longer themselves. They don't have the luxury like we do of being at work or not at work. They're always perceived by the public as being at work, which means that no matter where they are, what they're doing, um, whether they're at work or not, the public perceives them that way. And it, that's, I think, part and parcel of the problem is that um, the public or individual people no longer see them as humans or no longer see them as an individual who's a, a mother or a husband or a dad or a mom. They just see them as this persona and creates a level of anonymity. And so if they're not happy with them. It's almost like it's okay if I take it to the next level. And we see vitriol and social media all the time directed against politicians, which is really unfortunate um, because there is this cloak of anonymity as it relates to social media. But somehow it has broken a barrier where even in person, in real life, it's it's still this, these attacks keep coming and the frequency is increasing and the level of severity is increasing. And now people are getting really hurt and killed on the job, on the job. They're doing a job, but somehow um, people don't see it that way. Yeah. It's such an interesting point. Is it like you say, like, when are they, when are they not on the job? So they, they become to your point, like these characters don't they yes um, yeah. that, that really that really they never they never stop and 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 and, and i would i would agree with that i would never i don't particularly like the mps that represent my area or the next area along like don't really like either of them um oh it was it wasn't a, it wasn't a late there was something that happened with a lady but uh, joe cox she was a, a labor party um, she was, I believe she died after being shot and stabbed. And then Sir David Amis, he, he was stabbed as well, I believe. So I think we've had two cases of it in, um, in the UK. I'm showing my, my lack of keeping up with modern news. Um, but um, I think we've we've had quite a couple of cases of it in the, in the UK, and I think interesting that the the conversation is of a, the conversations that politics get involved are more and more volatile, aren't they? And and when you're when you've got social media, tends to become this echo chamber. 
which I do think is social media is a good thing. I'm definitely not against social media, but it, it is, I think it's blurred the lines where people have gone, mm-hmm. people have gone, oh, I can say things. It's, it's kind of like, well, if I can say this, and this is really bad on social media and get away with it, what's the difference for me chucking an egg at the, at the politician? So and I threw an egg and that wasn't that bad. Nothing happened. So what's the difference? And it kind of just quite quickly escalates. Uh, I mean, I think it was Gordon Brown back in the day got, got some pie chucked on his head or something like that. And we might all laugh at that, but is, is that like the, the net, it's like the net, next natural evolution isn't it of like yeah it's quite funny maybe in a different context but actually it it's violence yes it is violence and this escalation and this rising i don't know even how to articulate it but it just seems to be getting worse and worse with no check checks and balances to say okay that's enough um and you see that in in so many industries like in particular, I think what COVID has done it obviously has raised the temperature and, and caused stress and anxiety. I get that. But if you look at healthcare workers and how at the beginning of the pandemic we were, you know, banging our pots and pans and you know, thankful and all of this was so great. And now um there are so many conspiracy theorists out there and so many people who are against the healthcare workers and and the threats and the violence that happens against a nurse like who would have thought a nurse would be you know at risk or a teacher or a social worker all of these positions which we once thought were just jobs that people went and did that they weren't at risk now all of a sudden they're at risk for just doing their job it's it feels somewhat shocking and sad to me. Mm. And it is kind of as a as an organization, it's, it's interesting because I'm having this conversation with, with with another guest that's going to come on the podcast about safety professionals considering kind of like the political, economical kind of situation of society and how that could impact your work. And and ultimately, like so, if we take Brexit for for example, which was a phenomenally sensitive topic over here, um, you know, um, we're not allowed to talk about it in our house. So if family come round, there's there's like me and my wife on one side, and then there's like the rest of the family uh, on the other side. Um, um, and me and my mother-in-law basically are not allowed to talk about it <laughs> uh, because we just disagree. Um, and and it because it, it it got tense, like it got really tense. But at the end of the day, we're all still family. I'm not going to jump over the table and start punching my mother-in-law. Um, she might punch me, but um, but but ultimately, there are sometimes that people can take these these conversations a lot more a lot more seriously and they can start to have really personal connections and impact can't they so if we were to take a political decision during mm. covid for example if we were to take the uh the recent kind of i don't know scandal you might want to call it that we've had of boris johnson and his political party having you know a piss up during during covid it it could be that you've not been able to say goodbye to a loved one when they passed away or or meet your new grandchild or whatever, be with your partner when they give birth or, or, or whatever, that's a phenomenally sensitive and emotional 
topic and if you if you found out your local politician voted in one way or was involved in that piss up and they were there and then you walk past them on the street on a bad day like it, the, the, the flipping of that switch is close isn't it so from a company perspective it's considering those wider political social economical um cultural type things that could potentially impact your work being like actually i can see how my local mp votes and and i think that's disgusting and i'm i could get really angry about that how close am i to taking it over to the next to the next level of it being like a dangerous conversation so now as a safety professional and then and then yourselves coming at this from a kind of technical solutions provider We've really got to start considering a much wider broad of risks and influences for for managing the safety of these people. Absolutely, because I think before it was always the you know the true lone worker. So who is the person who works alone that has environmental risks? That's what we thought of, right? And that's why we thought of utilities and oil and gas and construction, the blue collar type roles, because. That's who they were. That's what they did. And we thought that was the, the only risks to being um, a worker that you had to face. Well, now all of that is kind of blurred because no longer are you necessarily alone even. So it's not alone because you could be in a crowd if you think about a reporter or a politician or something like that. Or you could be in a community if you're a um, home care worker, mental health and addictions worker, et cetera. So that loan aspect of it is, is not even the case anymore. And um, environmental, maybe not environmental, it's people. And mm -hmm. so who we consider to be at risk has changed considerably, unfortunately, over, over time. And it just seems to be ramping up now. So I think that's the challenge that organizations face is they can no longer say, who's our loan worker? And we need to put something in place. Now they need to say, who do we have that's at risk? And what can we do to keep them safe? Mm. It is that that kind of um it's, it's that flip side. I think for so long in, in safety, we've 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 spoke about okay, how do we eliminate the risk and blah blah blah. And, and, and we do all of that kind of pre-front-end loading kind of risk management. I find a lot of the time with our clients when we say, okay, so what happens when this goes wrong? Like, how do you deal with that? So if I take a, a really technical type example, being like work at heights, so really basics, health and safety, right? So often we go, okay, what's your rescue plan? What do you mean? What's the rescue plan? Like, no one's ever fell out of the cab or no one's ever come off the roof or we've got full edge protection or their harness. Like, yeah, but you, you need to, you need to think about if something did go wrong, how are you going to rescue them? Cause they're at height they're all the way over, over there. And um, the door just opened. So I was wondering what that was. Um, you know, they're all the way over there at the top of this spiral or whatever. What happens if it goes wrong? I find it actually it's quite a rarity for people to have that conversation. So if you just flip it on your head and start thinking about a journalist, which I would have always put in the, the bracket of a very low risk job, uh, unless they were like some kind of cool investigative journalist or whatever, you might put them in quite a low risk job. Um, but ultimately, what could go wrong? And if it does go wrong, 
how can we respond to that? That's when I think you're, you, we start talking about how quickly can we act? How quickly can we get there? You know, those panic type loan worker type devices, which is, I think is where it starts to get interesting. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Make it clear that the use of computer vision is because that you want to learn about patterns of behavior in parts of workplace to improve the work environment. And you will not use it as a disciplinary, disciplinary, disciplinary tool unless there are exceptional circumstances. Consult employee reps. Give them a distraction of what CV will do, CV being computer vision, as well as reassuring them. They will have great ideas about how it can be used to protect people. They're just two of the rules in the white paper um, that Protex AI have done for building trust within the workplace when we're using uh, computer vision uh, AI. So computer vision is like the AI tech that goes onto your CCTV that Protex AI do. And one of the biggest issues that we've got is that we've just got a culture of where we think not just as a company or you like just I think everyone, a majority of people have a culture where you think you're only doing this to spy on me. And that's the problem when we've got predominantly a lot of these AI type uh, data building type tech innovations and that was one of the things that stood out when we spoke to Protex AI we had quite a lot of these computer vision people come to us rebound and safety being like oh can we you know can we talk about you know talking to your audience and stuff like that and one of the first things we, we would try and get out of them is like how are you using this and the second we got a hint of like you're using it to punish the worker we we don't we didn't want it it was just being used as another stick to beat the worker and the thing that stood out with Protex is that they didn't want that to happen and they've kind of put that this this kind of whole ethos into a white paper um, which is a great piece of, of information it's free of charge you can download it from the website it's called AI's role in promoting a proactive safety culture all about kind of building that data and becoming more proactive but one of the first things we need to do is increase trust that's why I really liked their kind of list of rules essentially to build trust like this is how we're going to use it and this is our framework we're going to operate within so you can find the link in the description below for that white paper it's not massive it's a it's a relatively easy read it's not horrendous like academic type paper it's an easy read it's broken down into nice chunks and um, there's a lot of valuable information in there along with a little bit of a bonus as a kind of little introduction into safety culture so if you weren't and you weren't sure as to where the word or phrase safety culture came from it's in that paper as well go to the link in the description and download your paper now um but you do raise a really good point i think in the safety industry, we are trained to, to think about those particular risks, like you said, falling from height, those environmental risks. We all know about that. We are taught about that right from the get-go. This is These are the types of risks to look at. Um, and I think a lot of organizations are caught off guard when something happens because they don't expect that their reporter is going to get attacked. Although now, unfortunately, there's been so many examples of that happening, in particular with women that I think they're starting to think about it, but exactly that. Um, first of all, is just 
being aware, be open to the thought that something could happen in an industry that maybe it never did happen before. And thinking about what, um, if that does happen, what is the ideal outcome? What is the best way to address that? And as you said, like getting help, getting notification, um, responding in some way, all of these things. So there's the, uh, that's very reactive, but there's also some proactive technologies out there as well. So it's a bit of a blend, some proactive, some reactive, but no matter what, just not leaving somebody stranded or leaving them with a way, not with a way out. Mm, Yeah. And I do find it fascinating that those, those kind of, it's, it's asking that question, coming back to what we were speaking about earlier, like what, what is society starting to find more acceptable to to push the lines on? Like, so if I think about in in a film, you might watch a film, right, and see uh, and see us, you know, the press really hounding this this like celebrity in the film, and the celebrity kind of like maybe wax the the journal or whatever. Yeah, actually, just saying the word journal makes me think about it. Like, um, from there's, there's like a football violence film that's quite popular in uh in england called green street right and there's this whole thing about how they hate journalism uh, they hate journalists and not and a lot so we're starting to betray this like maybe acceptance this social mm-hmm. permission to actually go actually yeah journalism it's a dirty dirty profession they're the they're the pond scum of 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 like media it's okay for us to treat them like shit because they treat some celebrities like shit. Um, And then on the flip side, if I always find it interesting when I'm sitting in the living room, maybe talking to family or whatever, and they're like, oh, it's it's so horrible that journalists can, can just treat celebrities like this. Um, and okay, cool. all right, yeah, fair enough. But if you're consuming that media, then you're de- mm-hmm. you're creating the demand that's having the knock-on effect, which then has a knock-on effect that the journalist is pissing off the celebrity, then finds it acceptable. So you, you start to put all this stuff together, and that again, coming back to the original kind of point is it is wider societal demands and conversations and characters and so on is creating a situation that as a business, you ultimately would probably never attach to being a contributing factor to an incident, but actually it is. Yes. Yeah, it is. It is amazing. It's not a simple problem. Um, Mm. It's not a simple solution. It is very much um, culture, society, that whole integration of what's acceptable and what isn't. And, yeah, the, the blurred lines that you talked about previously, it's it's really interesting. And I I don't necessarily see a simple way out of this either. It'll be interesting to see which direction it goes, though. Mm. Mm. And it is as as the, the I don't know, I don't know whether it just feels it or whether it actually is, but it does genuinely feel like the, the world is just getting more angry. Yeah, absolutely. I I like I said before, I think with the pandemic temperatures started to rise um and i mean that you know obviously from a figurative way unfortunately literal as well but a figurative way in in terms of how people were reacting and responding to one another what was acceptable language and behavior um and it was largely in social media but i think that 
it is coming out to the forefront. We're all being let out, if you will, and, and back to what was pre-pandemic. And yet uh, some of the social norms I think that we had before aren't in check anymore somehow. I, I'm not really sure why or how that is, but, and maybe I'm, I'm being a little bit naive or Pollyanna and maybe it was rising before that. And this is just coming to a head now. I'm not really sure. It just mm -hmm. seems that the incidents and rates of violence against um, all these different industries is shocking. And maybe it's also because we're so close to the United States where it it is really a, a boiling point um, where you see, you know, whole classrooms being shot up and people being killed. It's, you know, it's, it's really extreme there. Um, and, and that could be part of it as well. Mm. Yeah, I was just thinking, like, as you were kind of talking, like, like where, if, if I was, uh, I don't know, where is the kind of line? So if I was thinking, like, you might say a football player. Yeah, fair enough investment. Like, you know, we already know that there's violence within football, um, within, particularly within the UK. It's a big problem for us. Um, so should we give our football players? Yep. Okay. Let's give our football players that. Like, but what level of football players? Like, where does it become? Okay. Yeah. This is, this is, like, are we talking premiership? Probably an easy win. Yeah. Premiership, loads of money. What about championship? I know nothing about football. So I have no idea whether this. So, so my thought track was like, okay, we go premiership and football would make sense. Should, should we do the same with, with rugby? So I'm a massive rugby fan. Now, I've stood next to most of the premiership rugby players that, that I've, well, not all of them, but you know, quite a lot of them. And they're bloody huge. You'd never probably pick on any of them. Um, wow. Even small ones you'd be probably scared of. They probably don't need a loan worker device because, well, I'll be more worried for the person that picks on them, if I'm honest. Um, but, but like, just to take it as a perspective of like, if I go and watch a rugby game, um, it's quite likely I will see those players and those coaches. Like there, there's less of a barrier. It's not it's not a completely separate world. Whereas if I go and watch football, for for example, I don't think it's quite possible that I'll come across one of the players. Whereas in rugby, it, it is really it is really quite quite easy. If you go to Wimbledon, for example, in um, in the tennis in in England, you 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 can literally just stand in the crowd and one of the big names of tennis will just walk straight through. Like it, it's kind of like you couldn't, I don't know, it would feel, it would feel for me kind of disproportionate if you tried to put it on say like tennis, where there's been never been really any violence in the, in the, in the industry or in that sport. But like to, to your point is where, where, where is the line? Like, do we wait until somebody gets smacked or somebody gets her or whatever well i think as it relates to more of the celebrity um whether that's a sports celebrity or whether that's um you know a film celebrity or something like that or even um some of the the large very large fortune 100 fortune 500 ceos etc exact that sort of a thing when it comes to those individual people um they actually most likely already have their own security detail um, of which they are doing business with a company like mine. We do work with organizations like that. So they, they're 
already on it because we don't hear what happens behind the scenes in terms of the direct threat threats against them. So they're actually hyper aware of their mm-hmm. risks to those individuals. So I think you might be surprised in that industry how much risk there is. And I think they're ahead of the game as it relates to um, keeping those, they call them high value clients safe. So those people are already taken care of uh, for the most part. Uh, It's the the average Joe citizen that is complacent and doesn't think that it could happen to them. That's really the higher risk individual and the ones that, um, you know, really need to be thinking more about this and be more aware and just start being prepared for it. Uh, but that that other aspect is already taken care of. And as I said, we do business on both ends. So I, I can say that with a rare amount of confidence. <laughs> the, the interest to me is sort of like the average Joe, right? Is is the sheer speed of this now as well, right? Is it uh, so we've got a podcast, we've been building this for about four years. We got on average, about an audience of around 4,000 people. I could say something right now and publish it tomorrow, and those 4,000 people within the next week will listen to it, and it could be extremely controversial. And I don't think it would be very hard to find out where I live. I don't think it would be very, very hard. So I could literally go to, like, public enemy number one tomorrow just from one thing I say, you know, it, it doesn't take much to go like viral on on the internet nowadays, particularly if it's something bad. So I think the, the sheer speed of how much this can change now is that an employee, a journalist, anyone really, a kind of low-level MP can go from, you know, unheard of to the biggest thing in news from one tweet overnight. It is shocking, and you're right. And that that influence, that exposure to having them have that platform can come from anywhere. Absolutely, it just takes that that one tweet, and it's that. I think that is what makes this really hard now. Because you'd be like, "Well, hang on a minute, James. You want me to roll out loads of expensive loan worker tech to all of the MPs in in the UK, even these ones down here in bloody Kettering and Wellingborough or whatever that no one's ever really heard of." Well, well yeah, because it yeah. just takes one tweet from that person. And- yes, exactly. That is exactly the case here in Canada. Um, the federal MPs, members of parliament, they, um, they are all um, currently provided with the opportunity to have panic buttons. Mm-hmm. And I believe it's just happening at a provincial level here as well. And um, so even in Canada, this has been identified as a major need. Yeah. Wow. Where we're friendly. Uh- <laughs> yeah and you're all really nice to each other where over here we just hate each other so that doesn't make i would be curious to see if that conversation is happening in the uk i find the uk's quite attitude towards safety seems to be quite um it, we discount the future quite a lot i find in our, our culture is very i won't happen to us kind of thing um when we see these cases of of you know sir david and and joe who had been victim to these horrific events? I think a lot of the time we think, "Oh bloody hell, that's a that's a crazy case." That you wouldn't you wouldn't see that again in your lifetime. Whereas, like, you know, I I googled it thinking about Joe, and it's and I completely forgot about Sir David as well. So it's like it 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 is happening. 
it is happening and i think the pace of the pace of change now that we have that 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 social media is driving again i think there's good things to social media and bad things like anything but the sheer pace of it i would be really interested to see if government i don't know i, I, I don't even know who employs mps i think it would technically be the parliament but i'm not really sure like yeah. who is, who is the duty holder the members of parliament yeah. Yeah. So like if I'm a member of parliament for the Labour Party, is my employer the Labour Party? I don't know. Anyway, so whoever's that duty holder of that, are they are they having these conversations? I'm I'm gonna stop a guess to say they're not over here. But I'm, I'm that would be shocking, you know, because I find the UK is actually ahead of North America as it relates to loan worker policy, um, loan worker technology. Um, for sure, leaders in the industry from that perspective. I'd say Canada next, followed distantly by the unit, very distantly by the United States. So I would, I would be surprised. It would be disappointing. And and if they don't have anything in place, they should be talking to us. So if mm-hmm. there's anybody listening, you should be talking to um, Solskart. Just saying. <laughs> um, I think the the other the other thing I think is quite interesting is 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 the media. Um, well, we've spoke about journalists quite a lot, but but I think I think typically, again, you've got you've got a similar challenge here in that you have the big papers, which I think would be an easy conversation, right? To be like, okay, you're going to be a journalist, and I want you going to have a look at this really um, complex, maybe you know, challenging environment. We're going to risk assess and emergency plan the shit out of that i think that makes sense but where is the line when it comes to the evening telegraph around here which is like small time you know newspaper mostly covering sheila who lost her cat or whatever but like small time stories but ultimately could still end up in quite a quite a tense conversation one-on-one with somebody in their house and and you you just never know i, I think back to like my my short time in, in in the care sector where we were going in people's flats, um, it was quite rare that you went that the safety team went into somebody's flat, but ultimately our engineers did. And and then to come back to your original point, they're the they're the normal people we think of when we think of loan working, right? Um, but I'm not sure we would have thought of, say, like if I worked for the Evening Telegraph, I wonder if the Evening Telegraph are going, actually, yeah, I know we're sending Bob to talk to Sheila about how she just got a letter from the Queen because she's 100 or whatever. But what we don't know is that her husband is has got severe mental health issues and could quite easily become violent. We have no idea when you go into someone's house what what's there, even if it's a, a dog or, or, or whatever. It, it is... It makes it makes me wonder when when people start having that conversation, and ultimately, I do think kind of funding and and costs and stuff start to come in. Those things are operating on such a tight margin. You know, there's no money in small local papers anymore. Um, where that funding is coming from and stuff. So, it does start to get really complicated. Yeah, for sure. And like anything, whether it's what we offer or other types of PPE or anything like that, you have to weigh it out, right? The risk and and the cost. And I totally get it. And it's not necessarily for everyone all of the time, for sure not. So organizations 
I think their first step though, is to do the risk assessment. What is the likelihood that something's going to happen and not look at it with rose colored glasses, but look at it from the perspective that if there's a likelihood, so what is the likelihood that it's going to happen? What type of industry you're in? And the ones, especially the industries that have never really thought of it or looked at it before, maybe now is the time to think about it and try to get ahead of an incident instead of being that one behind. Because as an organization, if you haven't done anything and a major incident happens, the whole world's going to know about it. So where do you want to be as an organization? Do you want to at least have had the conversation and maybe looked at that level of risk and, and done something about it? Because I guarantee it to you that if they do something about it ahead of time and have those protocol um, procedures and technology in place, it's going to be less costly than if they do nothing and react to it. Mm. Yeah. It's, it's, I think it's that it's the likelihood bit that, that's going to keep tripping us. So I think in that in that conversation, because I think I think even in even in normal safety, like working at height, we're not we're not very good at that. We go, what's what's the risk? Well, if you fall off a ear, you're dead. But I've been doing this for fifty years and I've never fell off. And it's like that that's such a terrible way for us to have this conversation. Um, and and so how how it's interesting as like how do we have that conversation? Do we go right as a politician, James? You're a bit more of a controversial politician, um, so we're going to give you we're going to give you this this panic button, or we've only got ten, for example, or we you know we're going to try and risk base this. So we'll give it to you because you're a bit more controversial or whatever. Um, but ultimately, controversy is is a perception, isn't it? So so I might not be quite controversial, but to someone who agrees with the other person. I am quite controversial. If I'm very on the fence, that might be equally as infuriating to somebody. So I think it's that likelihood thing that's going to make this really hard for those journalism type, politician type industries where the speed, the prediction, likelihood, all of that stuff is just poor. Nigh on impossible to guess, I think. I think it comes down to what you just said is that if something goes wrong as a company, how do we want to be perceived? Yeah. And even if you look as, again, if you look at the federal government of Canada, they have offered this technology to all of the MPs. Now, whether or not those MPs choose to, first of all, take them up on it and take one and then wear them. I mean, there's only so much that you can do. We have a saying here in Canada, I don't know if you have it, you can lead a horse to water, but you can't make them drink. So um, it really, that as an organization, you do what you can to keep your at-risk workers safe. Um, you've done your bit and then it's up to them to be able to, you know, take it the rest of the way. Mm. I just, it's just, I mean, I would kind of go re retreading water, but like the more I think of it, the more I just think, do you know what? This just opens up such a massive, and, and I think for the big companies, you know, like BBC, um, I think some of the members of the BBC safety team listen to this actually based off some people that talk to us. Um, so it'd be curious to get some of them on maybe, but like, even, even if you're just like, right, okay, we're just going to send some journalists and, you know, we think about journalists of like, right, there's a problem. What do we do with a journo? We send them towards the problem because everybody exactly. knows what's going on. And <laughs> that is exactly it. 
And it's just so funny, isn't it? Where you got okay, yeah, emergency services, yeah, we're gonna we're gonna proper look after them because they're going into the fire. So is a journalist, like maybe they're not going into the fire, but they're right there. Um, and and even in the middle of a storm, a flooding, whatever, you know, s- sensitive political situations, journalism is right there. One of our customers, actually a number of our customers, uh, in particular in the province of Ontario, are ambulance drivers. They mm. outfit all their ambulance drivers because of that. They're the first ones that are being sent into these very risky areas. Mm. And um, they have no particular way. They have radios and things like that. But if, if as you can imagine, if they're when they're doing their job, how do they call for help? Um, and yet they're the first people that we throw into the fire. It's it's very interesting how we yeah, we outfit a police officer, we make, you know, ensure that they're okay, but all these other people that are also first responders aren't adequately equipped to stay safe. Yeah. And, and, and I, I, we, I've, I've had that conversation in past, but with the fire service where the fire service have um, purposely been called into a, into like a cul-de-sac, essentially like a, a trap where they've literally been called into a trap where there's a little fire in they go and then they just get stuff thrown at them and they're just stuck in the, in the fire appliance, just stuff thrown at them um, in quite scary, potentially could have escalated into something, something a lot more serious. And, and that's where we come back to what we were talking about earlier is that when we start seeing these roles, these jobs, not as, not as people, but as characters, as as we see the badge or the uniform, we don't see the person in it. So our, we might be throwing stones at the government in the subconscious of our head, but actually what we're doing is throwing stones at a, a person. Absolutely. Mm. It, it, it is fascinating when you really think about it, isn't it? It's just, and I think I think part of it as well, maybe, is that if you would if you'd use that fire service ambulance type scenario, is the the sheer level and complexity of what they face as the day to day job, you can become quite over consumed by those big risks, can't you? Like, well, yeah, we've got to focus on a fire because we're going to send these these guys and girls into a fire, so we need to sort that out. And probably just completely just forget the potential of of something like this, the societal issues. Um, yeah, kind of. It's kind of a big uh, a big minefield when you when you start to open it up. And I remember the first time we started, I thought, oh, we've we've covered loan working on the podcast before. I'm cool curious as to where this would go when you said i actually like to have a conversation more about the different types of profession that we don't really think about I was like, that's a good point because i've never thought about it myself either and i think most people if you're in the, those industries and you're you're i, I know actually the guy for the, who's a head of safety for leicester fire service i'd have to ask him if they if they still experience any types of aggression like that um but um if you're in those industries maybe you do think about it but but typically when we do think about loan working we do think about those trades and stuff i don't i don't think many of us would would consider journalism or politicians as a kind of loan worker risk because the first thing you think about is loan and and you're like well they're not really alone because they're always around people yeah yeah. and i think that's part of the danger of the the terminology of loan worker is it's there's this preconceived notion of what it is and who it is 
and who requires it. And it's like, we've checked off all those boxes, um, but we're, we need to reframe it, which is why I keep saying at risk as, as you have as well, um, because who are, who are the people that are at risk and who are the ones that need something to keep them safe? And so that we don't just automatically default to those trades, as you said. And, and interestingly, like thinking of it a bit more, not just on the roles as well. So I, I think in in my career, and I worked in in housing post Grenfell, and one of the roles that I was given was going round to our medium to high rise properties and essentially listening to the residents, and. Trying to, well, I'll tell you the word I was told by my bosses, reassure them. The response from me was, but what if they're in a building that shit? And then you can, you can, you can guess where that conversation went. And so my job was to go around and reassure them <laughs> in, uh, I'm navigating a minefield here, as you can probably work out, but um, to go and reassure people. And, and typically the conversations were quite good. Most of the time people were more bothered about the, do- the dog poo on the front lawn or when they're going to sort the fence out. They surprisingly, like we thought we were going to get lynched. Um, and I only really had about two or three really difficult conversations. Um, but ultimately, no no real problems. But thinking about it, we had a mass rollout of the, these lone worker devices. And naturally, um, our I think our national safety manager had pretty much just said, look, we've got these ones that were quite clever, actually. They were as... Um, the ones that we ended up with in the end were like part of your lanyard badge. So you had your name badge on your lanyard, but it was also your, that was also like your panic button tracker thing. Um, so that was quite good. Now I don't think the safety team had them thinking back on it. I'm trying to work out in my head whether we did, but I don't think the safety team had those because typically we weren't in that, in a difficult situation. Mister, that's enough. Um, we weren't in those difficult situations, but you're now sending us uh, a safety professional to go talk about a very sensitive topic and trying to talk about that topic post Grenfell when they're in a situation that echoes similarities of Grenfell. Mm-hmm. So overnight, my role has gone from not even considered a risk to like, well, actually I could, I could be in a really tense conversation here with somebody now. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there's always tense conversations, but if you can have a person to person conversation where they're seeing you as a person and you're able to address that and you're dealing with somebody who is reasonable and rational, then great. You know, they are not great, but okay, that that's a reality of difficult conversations and we need to have them. It's when those variables change. It's when, as you said before, you're not seen as a person, but you're seen as a character. You are the fill in the blank whatever you are, when you're seen as this anonymous individual, that's a problem. When the person that you're talking to or dealing with is um, struggling with some major mental health issues, that's a problem. When, you know, you're dealing with a crowd of really angry people that now we're talking uh, crowd behavior and you're not talking individual behavior, that's a problem. And so it's when those variables change that you, that's when we need to be concerned. Yeah. 
Yeah, thinking a bit more holistically, like not just about the role, but ultimately what is that role in that situation? How might that be interpreted by the person that you're interacting with and and so on? Yeah, absolutely. Mm. Wow. Awesome. Cerise, thank you very much for your time. Uh, I don't want to take too much of your, your day because you've still got a day ahead of you um, in, in Canada. Um, if people are interested in Solid Guard, um, what's the best way to, to kind of move it forward, find out more about you guys and so on? Absolutely. Just go to our website, um, www.solusguard.com. S-O-L-U-S-G-U-A-R-D. Solusguard.com. And we'll we'll put that website in the description as well for everybody. So um, that makes it nice and easy. But thank you very much, uh, Cerise, for your time. It's been an interesting conversation. Thank you. I really appreciate it. Okay, peeps, hope you enjoyed that episode. All the links for Cerise's company. If you want to find out some more, you want to talk to them, whatever it is, all the links will be in the description below. If you need some help with managing the risk of loan worker or any other safety-related, uh, fire-related, or kind of human behavioural-type related stuff around safety, then check out riskfluentltd.com and maybe you can work with us, maybe we can work with you. All the links and stuff we mentioned in the description below. I hope you enjoyed this episode. I'll catch you next week safe the views and opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the host and its guest and do not necessarily reflect the position of the companies examples of analysis discussed within this podcast are examples only based on limited and dated open source information and should not be utilized in real life as the only solution available assumptions made within this analysis are not reflective of the position of the companies no part of this podcast may be reproduced, stored or transmitted in any form or by any means, mechanical, electronic or otherwise, without prior written permission from James McPherson.